At Urban Farm Podcast, we are all about education, and April is Foliar Feeding Month. Have you heard of it? It is a super simple application of spraying liquid organic fertilizer on your trees and garden plants. The leaves, branches, and trunks are incredible at absorbing nutrients. And if your soil isn't great or your pH is off, foliar feeding is a quick and long-lasting fix to get your plants the nutrients they need. Want to learn more? Join us for our free online webinar on how to apply this amazing process to your gardens and fruit trees. Visit urbanfarm.org to sign up. That's urbanfarm.org. Greetings, urban farmers, gardeners, and healthy food visionaries. Farmer Greg here, and welcome to the 695th episode of the Urban Farm Podcast, where every day we work together to educate and inspire you to become part of your food revolution. Today in our podcast, we have someone who wants to make growing fruit trees easy and affordable for beginners. We're talking with returning guest Joshua Berman Thayer about food forests for first timers. Joshua has always had his hands in the earth as he has traveled extensively around the world working with communities around plants and food. He started out as a wolf volunteer on organic farms throughout Latin America, worked as a laborer on organic CSA farms back home in California, apprenticed and worked in ecological landscape design, and did native plant field research with renowned mentors. With all that experience, Joshua has become a lead designer and advocate for uniting ecology with aesthetic, creating beautiful, productive, natural systems that work with nature to foster bounty. Joshua, we got to meet you on Podcast 311 back in December of 2019. Welcome back to the show. Are you ready to rock? Let's do this. Awesome. Last time you were here, we talked about Mediterranean food forests. And if you're interested in listening to that podcast episode, you can check out our patron program at urbanfarm.org forward slash patron. Back then, we talked about the importance of knowing your climate and recognizing similar climates around the world to know what foods could grow well in your space. Since then, you've written a book, which we're going to talk about today. So we have a little catching up to do. Can you bring us up to speed on what's been happening with you since? Sure. Thank you for having me on, Greg. It's been, uh, boy, five years flies by, doesn't it? Um, right. So yeah, I've uh, been been staying in my pursuit of community and, and residential scale food force. And my work continually opens up more opportunities for that. And so I'm grateful to be able to help design and implement community and residential scale food forest systems and utilize that experience to write articles to help people unlock how to get started with things that may be daunting. And so those two aspects of my design life of working on projects and then writing about it is, is, is what's been what I've been up to. Nice. And you've actually started designing and implementing food forests, both for private residents. Have you done any public ones? I have done a school design in Oakland um, at nice. the Garfield School. And I have been involved with giving ideas and concepts to some community-based garden programs that are starting to plant fruit trees. And I'm available to help troubleshoot and provide ideas to friends and, and network of people that are, are going through the process of designing a food forest. Yeah. And then I, my main bread and butter is creating food forests for residential homes. Nice. And let's kind of delve into what a food forest is and how is that different from an orchard? Right. A perfect way to put, describe it. It's, it's building upon 
And, you know, everyone's familiar with what an orchard means, meaning fruit trees that are going to be in productivity for many years. And hopefully an organic orchard would mean that there's no synthetic or pesticide applications to that system so that it's clean fruit that you would eat at a Whole Foods or from the local farmer's market or in your own backyard. And so building upon that of what makes it a food forest more than just an organic orchard would be adding lots of what's called biological services to the space. So the fruit tree making the plum that you eat is, is a direct response to the human being. That's easy to understand. But the things that make the soil more fertile and the things that help that plum have optimal pollination and the things that help that plum get less sick from pests and, and problems, all those things can be factored into the way that you design a food forest. So you're basically mimicking what nature would do by having a diverse array of role players together. Love it. So you're not out there raking up the leaves. Trying to keep as much carbon on site, trying to use all organic implements so that what is there is the opposite of toxic, but actually enriching the place and trying to create role players around the orchard that will build soil and create more abundance in the future by virtue of the way that they just naturally grow as plants. So we're building forest soil like a forest builds forest soil. Absolutely. You know, that that soil tilth in an annual fashion through the cycles of nature is this huge repository of compost, of soil, and of microbes, and of things that can inoculate in, and enliven the soil in the prairie, perhaps next to it. Nice. And let's talk about what you're calling locally appropriate plants, what may be also called native plants. Is there a difference? Yeah. yeah. Well, native would mean that it came from historically that region. So, you know, if you had a, a Channel Island cherry from Southern California, that would be historic to that region. So that would be a native plant that also provides food. And that's a really amazing overlap between culture and, and, and biology, for example. And then something could be appropriate to the area, but not be from there. So using that Southern California example, a pomegranate or an olive might do great down there as well, but they're not from that region of the planet. So not necessarily always native plants, but plants that match the conditions of preference for the region you're in. So if you're in a desert environment, your plant groupings that you'll be considering would be applicable to a desert environment. And if you're in a Mediterranean, hot, dry, wet winter place, it's going to be more akin to what would be in an oak woodlands. And if you're in a deep mixed forest environment, your options are, again, a different grouping of plants. So I, I think a lot of that is intuitive, but beginning to break down your land into different environments for plant groupings. Mm -hmm. Well, and, you know, many of my listeners know that I recently transplanted myself from Phoenix, Arizona, which is the Sonoran Desert, which I know pretty much every single plant that's there, to Asheville, North Carolina, where I know none of the plants that are here. So I actually reached out to somebody like you here in Asheville, and I'm, I've you know enrolled them, hired them to help me figure out what is a locally appropriate plant here. Brilliant. Yeah, humbly going into a new region and asking of others to teach you, even at a professional level, is such an important key part of, of it. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Because otherwise we're going in blind to a new region. So yeah. in incorporating a local expert is something that I continue to do as I get gigs in other counties and other regions is making sure if I can profit share with someone that can bring insight to a new 
plant groupings, then that gives me a, a better final say in the design. So yeah, that's a brilliant idea. And North Carolina is a real bastion of plants, you know. Uh, it is. They say the Smokies in North Carolina and west in, into Tennessee, and then the Oregon, Northern California border are the two repositories of conifer diversity in North America. Wow. So a real cool mixed woodlands there of all kind of stuff to explore. I imagine you're just getting started here in North Carolina, <laughs> huh? Yeah. Well, yeah, I'm just, we've only been here about three months and, you know, it's, it's a little bit mind bending the whole, first of all, the move after 54 years. And secondly, the diversity and the veracity, I think that's the right word of how things grow that, you know, I've, I've been watching this one street sign since I got here that had no plants growing on it you know, 90 days ago, and it's just about completely covered up and it's, you know, it's eight foot tall sign. And so. Yeah. Veracity. Is that what you said? Yeah. It's a good word yeah. for it. Yeah. yeah I, you know, it, different operating systems, like where you are almost a tropical jungle for six months and, and just the fertility and the ability for things like corn to jump up and get ginormous and sweet mm -hmm. are through the roof. And then a kill frost that's going to come into most of that region and start everything back down to its roots and back to the ground again. And, and so that cycle of renewal and expansive growth and then cycling back to decay and starting over is a quintessential element to that mid-Atlantic region. I grew up in Virginia, so I can relate. And then, you know, the desert is almost the opposite where, yes, there's fluctuations between wet and dry season that are very pronounced, mm -hmm. but the frost risk in the lower deserts, at least, is not as much of the issue. It's not getting killed by that each year as much as it is going through wet and dry periods and so forth. So yeah. each region has these limitations slash sweet spots. And you already know about the Southwest. So now you're going to build your toolkit to the Southeast and have that whole spectrum in your awareness as you go forward, which is a gift to your design sense. And you're probably right. bringing yeah, you probably bring some desert design ideas to that area, I'm imagining. Well, and interestingly, the Water harvesting in Phoenix is about water harvesting for drought. Water harvesting in Asheville, North Carolina is, oh my gosh, how do we manage the massive amount of water that shows up? We got had one day last month with two and a half inches. Oh my God. So That's I'm still doing water harvesting. I'm just managing it differently. So yeah, but in that moment, you probably feel like you're in Hawaii or something. That's crazy. right. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Let's get on to your book. What's the name Please. of your book? So the, the my first book offering that is now available is called Food Forest for First Timers. A little alliteration there. Food Forest for First Timers. So a primer uh, introductory to what is a food forest and how could you begin to digest some of these permaculture concepts that the feedback I get from working professionals, friends, and family is can be overwhelming to digest all at once. So yeah. this book is an attempt to make it very simple, straightforward, and a bit of coaxing to introduce new concepts to a larger audience. And nice. So I'm going to, I'm going to throw something at you here. Yeah. What are the first three things that I want to consider in building a food forest? Right. As first a beginner, of, as a yeah. beginner. Well, first and foremost would be any agricultural pursuit, which would be to identify your climate, to know what your parameters of climate are and what type of environment you're in. And that might direct what plants you choose. Like if you're in a cold, harsh winter place, the deciduous fruit trees are going to be your better options because things like carob and citrus would freeze in the winter. So they would be off the table unless you have a greenhouse. So mm -hmm. things like that, that are going to be general regional parameters. 
you know, once you get to that, the real issue becomes pollinator support. So the ability for every blossom that a plum tree makes to be pollinated by local faunas of native bees and honeybees and et cetera, to pollinate those fruits that will become, pardon me, the flowers that will become the fruits. Mm -hmm. And the third one I'd say is soil building and the ability to organically increase fertility over time. So a modern urban lot that has some decent soil may have somewhere to the tune of two to 6% organic matter. And then hopefully you can drive that in a decade later, when you, when you assess that soil, you could have eight to 10% organic matter as you begin to build it through these, these practices. And a lot of these practices are getting your brain rewired to find creative ways to use these plant residues and plant products on the property and not always be mindset to haul it away, haul it away. Yeah. Well, you know, in the desert, the soil there has less than a half a percent of organic matter. Oh my gosh. Which is, you know, it's, it's this hard caliche dirt that's there that, you know, I spent at the urban farm, I spent 32 years building healthy soil. It takes time and you do it by, by composting, by mulching, by, regenerative plant residues and by being mindful of how you cycle those nutrients for lack of a better word into your land. I think myself, myself and all your listeners have really watched that property in Phoenix totally transform. I mean, it's amazing what a lot of observation and elbow grease and irrigation can do once you figure out how to work with it. Um, Yeah. And as I mentioned to a lot of my clients, I'm good at what I do because I killed a lot of plants for a lot of years, but, you know, <laughs> right? slowly, slowly learn, slowly learn. Yeah. Well, and uh, I tell people all the time, I promise you, maybe not you, but I promise my listeners that I have killed more plants than you have. Right. Yep. In fact, I'm, I'm getting ready. So I did an instant garden here the first weekend we were here in April and I'm getting ready to do an up, updated video of that to show how badly it went. Oh my gosh. You know, it's, it's, and it's all about the soil. Yeah. You know, everything that's going on with the tomatoes and peppers and squash that I planted is all about the soil. So can you talk about the importance of soil? Yeah. Well, you know, in a, in a natural environment, things are going to be as native plants somewhat already wired to the region. They're going to probably sprout in because of the, the regional nature of their of their character when it comes to more longly cultivated plants like human beings have had around us for a long time you know for example if it has a latin name with the end of it as sativa that means it's been cultivated for a very long time whatever it is so there's a lot of plants that we've been in companion with for thousands of years and in those cases many of them like more fertility and like more water and like some care and pruning and they've kind of cohabitated with us to evolve in such a way that we need to kind of tend them and so sure, your apple tree will stay alive in a unamended side lot, but it won't be a productive commercial comparable orchard tree unless you give it what it needs, which is, you know, in season, the food it needs, and as well as a soil that is fertile and, and drained the way it needs it to be. So that can be overwhelming, but in a general sense, we're trying to build fertility into the growing spaces and the heavier feeding crops which in my book, I I have an appendix that breaks down lots of favorite cultivated crops as well as their feeding needs. Oh, Um, nice. And you'll find that, you know, for a lot of those heavy feeders, they can become the repositories on your land of the excess plant residues, cover crops, compost, and then other areas like a lavender or a salvia or a pomegranate is not a heavy feeder. You would be able to get by with 
less of a feeding regimen of compost and nutrients. So yeah, in a nutshell, without going too far down that road, I would say that, you know, building fertility and tilth of the soil, the fertility of the soil, it not only unlocks the capacity of your trees and plants to be healthier, but it has its own ability to regulate the plant's health and keep it healthier. Mm -hmm. So you're playing less catch up. You keep using the word plant residue. I suspect I know what that means, but can you tell us? Sure. I go into it in my chapter of the book that I describe as chop and drop. Chop and drop is a permaculture practice of as you prune back healthy bushes and shrubs and, and so forth, and you have those pieces of stuff you've cut. Once they're no longer living and have been cut and are beginning to decay or will begin to decay, they can be known as residues. And then those pieces break down tinier and tinier into more intensely dense pieces of future soil mix, essentially. And so by allowing that process to decay, perhaps on top of a heavy feeding fruit tree, that decay process is directly benefiting what's below it, which is the roots of a plum tree, let's say. So by integrating the decay of plants that are healthy into your production heavy feeders, you actually keep more nutrition on site and you drive the energy of those decaying plant pieces into the trees that would like to absorb that. It could be your heavy feeding um, fruit trees and annuals perhaps. So, And you don't necessarily have to chop all that stuff up. You can just literally cut it and drop it, right? Yeah. You know, it, there's, there's so many benefits to integrating plant residues on a property. One would be that as it breaks down, let's say you cut some alfalfa that you cover cropped with, and that alfalfa, each piece is high in nitrogen, high in microbial life. And as it rots, it's going to turn into good, tasty stuff for the plant it falls upon. Mm-hmm. That's one benefit that's very easy to understand, like a, like a green mulching composting situation. That's easy to understand. Another one, especially in dry climates like California or where you were in Arizona, <laughs> there's mechanical burning happening from so much sun radiating on the land that by protecting it with either wood chips or, or downed branches that you've laid around a tree or grass that you cut back that you pile up against a pine tree, whatever it may be, if that tree is benefiting from its roots staying cooler, that's a secondary benefit that may not be compost per se, but is protecting that root energy to be cooler and wetter longer. Mm-hmm. which is a big strategy in the Southwest that I know you know a lot about, but yeah. So there's different functions of what putting stuff back down to the soil can do for you. Well, and, and you mentioned it, a big, big, big function is, especially in the desert Southwest, cooling the soil. One of the things I discovered quite a few years ago in Phoenix was that in the summertime, it could easily be 160 degrees at ground level. Wow. And 140 degrees, six inches down. Whoa. That's enough to kill anything. Yeah. Except Bermuda grass. (laughs) Right. And by growing a cover crop over it or using that chop and drop to kind of get in the way of the sunlight hitting the ground, it drops the temperature 60 to 70 degrees. So that is so important. It's so important. That's huge. And that's where I think the desert and places that are arid and more tough to get started are real innovators of techniques that could apply to places like where you are now. You wouldn't, you wouldn't have to think of it there where you have year round water and good drainage and so forth. So it's, you know, the arid places teach us how to have brass tacks design sense, and then you can go back out to more fertile mixed forested areas and 
And it's a bit more of a breeze because you already know certain things are thriving in your area. Like if you go down your street and you find a really happy apple tree, it's not too much of a stretch to assume you can produce another one in your yard. So right. And that mid Atlantic belt is very fertile in that sense that it has this very powerful growing season when it is not frozen. It's, it's very full of fertility, almost like, like the Caribbean for a few months. Oh yeah. Incredible. And in our introduction of you, you said you're working on making growing fruit trees easy and affordable for beginners. So I'm guessing that fruit trees are the basis of your food forest. Yes. And in such, you know, the pandemic in the last two years has given a lot of people a lot more time at home. And as such, I'm getting a lot more queries of people wanting to DIY their own spaces and get perhaps some ideas rolling with a professional, but maybe not do the old school paradigm of hiring a company to put in the whole thing. Yeah. And I think that applies to a lot of your listeners. And I think that applies to a lot of people that are now coming towards this ecological food scene is mm -hmm. they want to try stuff and they want to do it efficiently and not super high priced. And so in my book, I also, the appendix is chock full of a plant list of great plants that I like and profiles on them, as well as strategies for ways to create an orchard cheaper. And one of those ways is to buy your fruit trees in bare root form each winter yep. and to have pre-planned perhaps the year before the layout of them. And then as you are able to score things like asparagus or fruit trees or berries bare root at a cheaper price point, they'll, they'll be the same size as a potted plant in the ground in a few years anyway. So yeah. it, things like that. And then learning the art of propagation is not a beginner's conversation, but it is a way to benefit from a big amount of abundance on a cheaper price point. And so sprouting your own stuff, direct sowed, for example, versus buying a six pack is much more affordable and buying a four inch and growing it out to be a five gallon is much cheaper than buying that five gallon plant. And planting that five gallon or bare root fruit tree is much cheaper than buying the 15 gallon enormous ones day one. And we can exactly. all, we all want the sexy giant olive that's already six feet tall, but at a triple or quadruple price point to the five gallon, they may be not that different in six to eight years. So, you know, it's, it's a time, time and price point. Everybody's different, but I think for a lot of up and coming listeners to your podcast, efficiency of price point and doing this is a bit of a, a way to make it approachable and not overwhelming price-wise. Right. Well, and we have found that if we're actually regularly feeding, because what happens often in past years with my clients of, you know, in Phoenix around fruit trees is they'd plant it and walk away. Yeah. And then about, you know, about 15 years ago, no, you got to be fertilizing four times a year. Fertilizing. Valentine's Day, and this is for the low desert, Valentine's Day, Tax Day, Memorial Day, and Labor Day. Fertilize four times with a granular fertilizer. Yes. With the extreme heat that we've had the past four or five years in Phoenix, what we found was that we need to be doing more fertilizing in the form of foliar and drench fertilizing with liquid fertilizers. What do you do with that? Yeah, that's a huge point to make. And I think that there's two issues. One is creating and designing edible commons that will be there for a long time. So if you plant three pomegranates behind your house tomorrow, it may take two to three years before you start to get a decent harvest in it, but then they're going to be there for 30 to 50 years of community harvest for your family or your neighbors or whatever. Mm -hmm. That investment in the commons being edible and productive for our future is a huge aspect of this whole thing. And even if you have that client that's not fertilizing the way they should and isn't really achieving that fruit tree abundance yet, 
they've planted them. And as plants, they're there and they're alive and they're digging their roots deeper and they're, they're establishing themselves. And I try to educate clients that sometimes it can take three to five years of a fruit tree in the ground of establishment before it has enough stored in its nature to then invest in a bunch of fruit. Right. But you're never really, yeah, go ahead. I was going to say, I always tell people three years. Yeah. Three years. Minimum three years. Three years. And what we're finding with the foliar feeds is that if you're following an every two week foliar feed throughout the year, the growth that we're experiencing and the speed at which you get fruit is accelerated massively. Massively, especially in the Southwest region and California where there's aridity to the air, it does desiccate or dry out the leaf quite quickly. Whereas where you are now there's ambient humidity and the leaf is taken care of a bit more, but even so the normal air ambient air is not bringing a kelp fertilizer directly to the leaf stomata. Exactly. So exactly. you're able to drive nutrition efficiently right onto the leaf and thereby directly imbibe it with nitrogen and microbial life, but also inoculate it against pests and, and disease. So yeah. the foliar aspect is enormous, but to answer your question, the, the quarterly feeding of fruit trees in granular and or fertilizer with liquid fertilizer is crucial when you want to actually produce like a homestead, when you really want to have productive trees that are pumping full of large fruits, you do want to be, like you said, feeding four times a year. And I do both. I do liquid fertilizer, generally speaking, when it's kelp meal or fish emulsion. And I do granular when it's calcium, magnesium, and Mm -hmm. different dry dust like that. And so I do a mix. I get EB stones, organic dry stuff a lot. And I get many different brands of kelp meal. We have a whole program that we teach around foliar feeding. You can find out about it at store.urbanfarm.org forward slash foliar. Yes, please send me that link. I will promote it. That's great. But yeah, the the fertility aspect in a, you know, you have the general fertility of the space you're in and that's going to apply to all the plants. And then you have your production trees like your avocado or your plum, and they do need extra nutrients. And if you did go to an organic farm and went to their orchard, you're going to find out they're also feeding their trees quite heavily to make them pump. Amen. But if you don't, you'll have that apple tree with three apples on it or five apples on it. And that's not the end of the world. That tree's still alive, but it's not going to give you perhaps what you had expected. And so I'm having to kind of re-educate a lot of my clients who have existing, like you said, they got me to put in the food for us and they had never had me back. And now it's three years later and they haven't gotten as much food as they would have liked yet. And, And it's understanding that seasonal and timely relationship to feeding. And that just takes, you know, learning over the years together. Yeah. Why would somebody buy, why should somebody buy your book? Well, I, I'm thrilled at what it became because it was quite a process. I essentially split a larger book idea in two through the pretext that many people who are not horticultural professionals were overwhelmed with a lot of the content. So it'll end up being two books. The book that's out that I released last December, which we're talking about today, is Food Forest for First Timers. It's an introductory. It's in black and white. It's meant to be a workbook. It has a huge appendix with lots of information, and it's meant to be very simple, meant to be coaxing anybody that's just starting a community garden or planning to renovate their backyard can use this as a, as a teaching tool that won't overwhelm you. Mm -hmm. As such, it's in black and white with very few photos. I have a dear friend that's a legendary artist fame from the Pal Peralta skateboard company named VC Johnson. And he collaborated with me on these images. So they're very warm and warm and whimsical. Everything's in black and white. So the price point could remain under $20 for the print copy. 
Nice. It's really, impor- really important to me that in anything that's going to be an introductory workshop material be affordable. First workshop I'll be doing over this book in, in San Leandro in the East Bay will be using this as this book as a teaching tool for the workshop. So, maybe you know, we should, maybe we should do one of those. That'd be great. I'd love to. And so, so the people that are buying this book, these are truly beginners. If you've never designed or looked at having your landscape being edible, this would be the book for you. Yeah, I think there's many books on vegetable gardening, and I use a lot of them as resources I researched for this book, but there's not a lot of content about food forests that is also introductory, in my opinion. And Mm -hmm. so this is towing that line between being a completely introductory book to anyone, while also staying true to the permaculture principles that have gotten me this far, as well as quite a large and robust appendix that would have perhaps fit with a more advanced book. But the the premise of this book was that anything that was overwhelming to my editor team, to my partner, or to any of my clients got weeded out. So this book is not going to overwhelm most people. And instead, I hope it evokes more involvement in their garden. So that's the cool. reason so, in a nutshell. Great. And so, and you have another book coming out and we'll have you back on the podcast then, but it, that's more not for beginners, right? Well, that one will be California food forest, plural. Originally, it was the California Food Force that shifted to California Food Force, plural, with Feeding for the Future as the subtitle. And as such, the second book will have an interactive map on the front of the book that shows over a dozen California food forests around the state, and then each nice. one with a profile. Some of them are from my own design portfolio, and some of them are public and community projects. But it's meant to show that this amalgamation of food forests is becoming islands in a chain. It's not just yeah. isolated projects. And nice. the, the idea for that book will be color photos and to go deeper into the how-to of actual steps. And we'll this have book, you back. We'll have you back on the podcast and when it's out and talk about that. That sounds great. So how so, do we find your book? So right now it's available on Amazon. I have e-copy available for $3.99 and I have the print copy available for $16.99. And in addition, I'm doing community events. And what I'm having community groups do is buy a minimum of 10 books, pre-buy the books, have me out for an event and use the book as a, an initial workshop content. Nice. Yeah. Congratulations on that. That's awesome. Thank like you. I said, maybe we can do one of those. It would be virtually with our team, but maybe we could do one of those virtually and yeah, go there. That'd be great. You have a copy of the book arriving if it hasn't come by now. All right, cool. So I'm going to shift on you. And as a returning guest, I would like for you to share a vivid childhood memory associated with food. Well, food, I was really blessed because I grew up in Tidewater region of Virginia and both my grandfathers in their retirements got crabbing boats. And so I was able to go out and harvest fresh crab routinely. And that was a big part of my childhood. Horticulturally, not as many examples, but My Southern grandma, my gammy, a little four foot 11 spark plug grew an incredible tomato patch every summer. And they were all beef steaks and big Cherokee purples and big stuff like that. And she would slice them, salt them, pepper them and ranch dressing them because this is the South. And and we eat big plates as the appetizer would be seasoned beefsteak chunks on the table. And boy, so robust. As you know, heirloom tomatoes grown well, almost taste like there's olive oil and, and spices inside of them. Just they're very, they're very flavors. Yeah. And that just, you know, that's the earliest childhood memory of just that abundance coming from the yard. Yeah. Nice. Nice. And a new piece of advice for our listeners. 
Wow. Well, there's, there's lots of stuff to consider, but I think one, you know, you touched on one that I would, would I'd mention, which is foliar. And I think looking into even just as simple as worm casting tea spray or kelp meal spray can work wonders for improving the health of, of a lot of your plants as a foliar spray. But I think if, if I had to pick one thing from what you just asked, it would be that in the last few years, I've switched to using coconut core as my sprouting medium. And then as soon as it fertilely sprouts up and gets cranking, I'm feeding with kelp and I'm moving it forward. And then it's going into the rich black soil per usual. But in the past, like, you know, years back, I was always sprouting all my seeds every spring in the black soil and I'd have so much dampening off. And for those of you listeners that don't know what dampening off is, it's essentially a fungal problem that's killing the plants before they can really even get started in the, in the black soil because the black soil is so alive. But with, you know, the coconut core, it's essentially inert, but it's also organic and it is, has the ability to sprout without dampening off. And so you're able to have a much higher sprout success rate. And as we were touching on earlier, for those trying to create these food forests and this edible spaces affordably, sprouting your own seeds is a huge aspect to that. And so starting those seeds in coconut core for me has been a complete game changer. I went from 40% dampening off to virtually none. Wow. So it's a huge, it's a huge help to have more, you know, because I have a lot of friends and family that have tried sprouting seed packets and they have so much die off that it's frustrating. Yeah. And the coconut really helps. Wow. That's a great piece of advice. Thank you. Sure. Yeah. And thank you so much for joining us on the show today, Joshua, once again. Thank you for having me, Greg. I'm honored to be back five years later and uh, let's, let's make it uh, not so much time this next time. I'll, hey. I would love to be back on for the, the book that should be out in about six months. All right. So Excellent. You just keep me posted on that. How can our listeners get a hold of you? find you and get your book. So my book is available on Amazon, e-copy and printed. My main design website, I design food forests and spaces for residential spaces is www.nativesungardens.com. And also I'm on Twitter at Native Sun Garden with no S. And also you can find me Native Sun Gardens on Instagram. You can also find show notes from today's podcast at urbanfarm.org forward slash Native Sun Gardens. We hope you enjoyed today's episode of the Urban Farm Podcast. Remember to listen for tips, advice, and resources to help you on your journey with urban farming. You can find us on the web at urbanfarm.org or send us an email to podcast at urbanfarm.org. In the words of Vincent Van Gogh, great things are done by a series of small things brought together. Be encouraged that with each lesson learned and skill developed, you are one step closer in the direction of your dreams. One of the first things that many of us learn when we start to garden is how to water and fertilize the soil. But there is an exception to this rule and it's called foliar feeding. You should foliar feed or water the leaves of your plant with liquid fertilizer when you want certain nutrients to be absorbed better. Not only are the leaves great at uptaking liquid fertilizer, if your soil isn't very good or your pH is off, foliar feeding can help your veggies and fruit trees quickly get the nutrients they need to thrive. If you're ready to start foliar feeding for maximum growth yields and quality, head on over to urbanfarm.org forward slash feed the leaves to see our selection of foliar feeding products. That's urbanfarm.org forward slash feed the leaves.